As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Recording once again, live and direct from Dakar, Senegal, from a very hot Dakar and Senegal at the moment. I am super excited to be in conversation today with Florian, someone I've met on my journey, on my travels whilst being in Senegal, who focuses on liberation struggles and state violence in 1960s and 1970s Senegal. I'm super excited to be talking about Omar Blondin Jop, someone whose name keeps on coming up in the work that I'm trying to do. Welcome to The Malcolm Effect, Florian. How's it going? I'm all right. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure and honour. So today I want to speak about Omar Blondin, Drop. So first and foremost, my question to you is, how did you come across Omar Blondin? Yeah, that, that's a story in itself. So I've been on this research path journey for the past five years now. Mm -hmm. And... It all started for me in 2018. Yep. So it was the 50th anniversary of May 68 around okay. the world. And, you know, there's a lot circulating about figures from May 68 and particularly an article on May 11th, yeah. 2018. So it was for the 45th anniversary of Obama Lindrup's death. So I entered this journey onto his death, you know, because wow. that's what's most well known about him mm -hmm. as he died in prison, right? Yep. And yeah, I was interested in. African history, that was my studies. Yeah. I had uh, spent my teenage years in Dhaka already. And so all of that came together. At one time. And I figured, well, why not research this man's life? And I realized how rich it was, you know. Exactly. So tell me about, tell me a bit about his life. And I understand his life is so illustrious that no one episode can ever fully encapsulate his life. But tell me a bit about Omar Blondin. Yeah, so roughly he's a philosopher, a young philosopher. Mm -hmm artist and activist. Yeah. I think those three aspects okay. define him rather well. Originally from Senegal, mm -hmm. but also having family in Mali. Okay. And born in Niger. Okay. So he's got a Pan-African pedigree from, from yeah. the start. Yeah. He was an active member of the May 68 movement in France. Mm -hmm. Then he was expelled from France, mm -hmm. immersed himself in the underground radical left in Senegal mm -hmm. under Senegal's presidency. Yeah. And then he undertook a struggle for military training okay. in Syria. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's probably going to be another <laughs> a whole other story. But that, that military training ultimately led to his, to his arrest. Okay. And from that arrest, he was sent to jail and found dead in prison. Yeah. In 1973. I mean, we'll definitely speak about the kind of circumstances that led up to his death and his arrest. But speaking about 1968 and his involvement in France, Paris, what took him to Paris? What was he doing there? And how did he get involved? Yeah. So Senegal has a very long colonial history with France. Yeah. And f you know, the first French settlements date back from the 1600s. Wow. So come mid 20th century, there's over, you know, three centuries of French presence. Mm -hmm. So the interactions and the circulations between Senegalese from Senegal to France, vice versa, 
were were very frequent at the time. So mm-hmm. what happened is that Omar Bruno Diop's father was a doctor. Yeah. And he wanted to pursue his studies or to complete his studies with a PhD in France just after independence. Okay. So at that time he moved to France with his family. Mm-hmm. And so Bruno Diop who had spent his childhood in between Niger and Senegal. Yeah. Then you know, as as a young teenager, moved to France, mm-hmm. and so that's the context. After having spent, yeah, almost ten years in France, that May '68 arose, and he was in between both worlds, in yeah. between West Africa and France. So that leads me on nicely to then what led him to his own radicalization. Like, why did he deem it necessary to be involved in 1968 uprisings? Like, what radicalized Omar Blondin Drop? Well, there's several stages, but for sure, you know. N- the mid 1960s is 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 really important starting point at least like in the european left right mm-hmm. with the whole debates around the ussr yeah you know the new left as well from the states mm-hmm. the cultural revolution in china in 66 yeah and so student mobilization is you know powering through in 66 67 you got lots of different branches that stem from you know the communist students but then you've got some who are pro Soviet Union, yeah. others who were pro-Italy, others who were pro-China's Mao, yeah. or Mao's China, rather. And so that's like a you know very intense moment of uh, politicization. Yeah. And May 68 arose not out of nowhere, because there was the the consequences of the Algerian War for Independence, which mm-hmm. were still very present in 1960 France. There was conservative society that felt like it had a stronghold over the youth, and De Gaulle's regime that was nearing its 10-year anniversary. And, yeah, one thing, you know, a, a event led to another. There was the Nanterre movement of 2022nd March movement, yeah. which Blonde Jop was part of. Mm-hmm. And all of these connections led to, yeah, the up, the, the explosion of, of early May 68 and yeah. throughout that month. Yeah. So, basically, Paris, France were like a melting point of radicality in which all these different factions and groups were kind of converging in one space, dealing with issues of colonialism and what does decolonization mean for those who were ex-colonized or previously colonized peoples. And that's what you say, would you say Omar Blondin finds himself in that kind of milieu then? He finds himself in that, but what's interesting with him is that on one one hand you have, you know, African activists who are disillusioned by the independence Mm -hmm. uh, movements. And they find themselves in France in, in a union called La Fédération des étudiants africains en France. So that's the mm-hmm. Federation of African Students in France. Mm-hmm. And so that's what you're talking about. Yeah. And then on the other side, you have French students, right? Yeah. And Blondin is in between both. Okay. He's, you know, as much in radical left movements. So there's Maoism circulating, there's yeah. anarchism circulating, there's situationism. Yeah. And also he's looking towards, you know, African liberation struggles yeah. through this federation and and also a Senegalese federation that's associated to it. And so he's at the crossroads between both. Mm-hmm. So specifically on his, like, I guess, care for Africa or his politics towards Africa, how would you categorize that politics? What was his political orientation when it came to thinking about struggles within Africa and the African context? Yeah, so he was already very aware of what was happening back in Senegal and back in on the African continent, he was at the time very much in between Paris and London, right? Mm-hmm. So he had met South African liberation freedom fighters in London. Yeah. And 
I'd say his politics were very much of the time, you know, Pan-Africanism, obviously, yeah. anti-imperialism, yeah. which both go hand in hand, and also a radical critique of, you know, the feudal system, mm-hmm. especially in the Senegalese context, but that can also be be um, understood in a larger context. Mm-hmm. But I'd say that his radicalization regarding the African context comes a little later. Okay. More than 69. Okay. Because at that time, after having spent a year post-May 68, he's expelled from France. Mm-hmm. And so that's also, I'd say, one of, like, a key moment in his radicalization because the country that had that he had been in for almost 10 years yeah. and he had been in between France and Senegal was now expelling him, right? Wow. And so at that time, it's also a moment of realization for him that he didn't know his country as well he's, as he would have wanted to. Mm. And now he was forced to go back. So he sees that opportunity to also immerse himself in the radical left here. And so from that standpoint... It was still Pan-Africanism, still anti-imperialism, but also trying to both adapt and make an organic political perspective within mm-hmm. the Senegalese context, which was not an easy thing given that Senegal was still very much a powerful neo-colony, right? Mm-hmm. France, France's stronghold over Senegal in the 60s was, was enormous. Yeah. Um, the university was totally French. The economy was still largely controlled by French corporations. You know, wow. Cifé Franc, which is still in action today, was was very much as well at the time. So, yeah, Senegal was probably one of the most prominent French neo-colonies in the 60s. And so there was that whole movement that he tended towards um, here coming back. So speaking about, I think it's very important to say his age at this point. Mm. How old was he when he got, came back to Senegal? He was 23. And I think that's important because when we're speaking about radicals we forget maybe not always but we are perhaps led to believe that maybe they're older in age but i think someone like blondie you know he was a student he was young and he has such a, a past of organizing and then comes back at the age of 23 to senegal so paint me the picture of what he comes back to in senegal uh, briefly i know senegal's in power yeah, yeah. what's happening yeah so senegal's in power so senegal you know held as the great Poet humanist. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, everyone who listens to this podcast or sees my posts on social media will know how much smoke I have for Leopold Leopold Senghor. I cannot stand him. But anyway, sorry, I digress. (laughs) Right. So, well, that's a picture of him. That says enough. But yeah, so as I was saying, you know, Senegal was most likely with Ivory Coast, you know, the most prominent new colony France had still a stronghold over. So it was a context of crisis Mm -hmm. at the time, you know, agriculture was not going well at all. Right now in the summer of 2023, we're we're not seeing much rain. And at the time it was years and years of of drought. Wow. So yeah, the countryside was, was really devastated by that. And, and uh, workers in the countryside were, really struggling at that point. Mm-hmm. You had 68, a year previous to uh, Blondin's return, which, you know, had also been very active at the Dakar University here. Yeah. And just generally a, a disillusion, disillusionment toward independence, you know. Mali's president had been deposed yeah. shortly, you know, a year before in 68. Kwame Krumah was, was also deposed a few years previous. And so it was this sentiment that the pan-africanist ideal was mm-hmm. slowly turning its turning on its head yeah and more conservative more reactionary governments were 
really imposing themselves on the long run. So that's the general context that Nolan set himself in. In terms of national politics, yeah. Senegal's rule was a one-party rule. Yeah. And so opposition parties, student organizations, trade unions were all dissolved and just blatantly illegal. Wow. And so... The great humanist. Right. And so <laughs> political mobilization was only possible underground. Yeah. Uh, clandestine movements. So that's the context he set himself in. Uh, there was a growing Maoist movement here. Mm-hmm. So he had drawn from Maoism, yeah. which also recalls his participation in Godel's La Chinoise movie yeah. in 67. And But that's, also, that's probably a, a side conversation. But yeah, Blondin was both into Maoism, but very quickly realized uh, some of the smoke that it had as well and, mm-hmm. and, and could not fathom with the idea that anyone could just recite quotes and that would be their political philosophy, mm. right? And it, let's say that that's the form that it took yeah. here among, among some of the, the Maoists, but he was also interested in situationism, anarchism, all that. And so he inserted himself in the radical left, yeah. contributed to the creation of the Senegalese Marxist-Leninist youth, which was an underground political movement, which then several years later led to a, a rather widespread Maoist movement. Oh, wow. And he was in and out of political formal activism. He was also very much interested in the junction between politics and art. Mm-hmm. You know, so he spent a lot of time with, you know, radical artists, painters, musicians. And what he'd do is he'd he'd bind both, right? So he'd go to the university, yeah, to lectures, and he would have one of his friends who played saxophone. Yeah. And so at the end or in the middle of um of a lecture, he'd just start, you know, screaming and saying, you know, get away from these bourgeois structures. You know, the education that your parents have 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 given you is totally is totally backward. And, you know, let's just free ourselves from from all of this, all, all of these uh, chains, right? Mm-hmm. And at that point, his saxophonist friend would play the saxophone and like half of the audience would leave with them. And, <laughs> amazing. And, and leave the lecture hall. So amazing, amazing. So let's speak. so clearly he has a deep appreciation for the arts. So talk about La Chinois. Listeners, that is a film I really like. Talk to me about it. How did he end up in La Chinois? Yeah, so if we go back a few years now in 66, 67, Blondin is very much integrated in the Parisian intellectual scene, artistic scene. Mm-hmm. And he's very much appreciated, you know, he's one of the only, if not the only, black intellectuals at that point. Mm-hmm. And he meets through one of his common friends. His best friend at the time was Antoine Gallimard, okay. who is the grandson of the founder of the Edition Gallimard, okay. which is one of the biggest publishing houses in France. Mm-hmm. So through him, he met a lot of philosophers, writers, intellectuals, and he introduced him to... So he introduced him to the spouse of Jean-Luc Godard. Okay. Right? So it's through those connections that he met Jean-Luc Godard. And Jean-Luc Godard, so Swiss filmmaker, was looking for a Marxist-Leninist student. Yeah. Met with with Blondin and figured out, right, he has to be in my in my movie. Wow. So that's how it happened. And in the end, his the, the scene he plays in is very interesting because he talks about the European left. Mm-hmm. but And he also describes it as such. It's essentially the third world. Mm-hmm term used at the time, yeah. giving lecture to, you know, the European left mm-hmm. and to the white left. Yeah. So that's an interesting dimension to that. And a year later, after La was, he went to London in the summer of 68 and joined Godard on the set of his movie One Plus One, mm-hmm. also renamed 
a little later, Sympathy for the Devil. Okay. Which is a junction between scenes of the Rolling Stones recording their album yeah. and members of the British Black Panther movement wow. in a, in a tr- trench yard, uh, reading radical texts from Amiri Baraka and uh, Aldrich Cleaver. Wow. Yeah. And so he was on the set as a Black Power consultant. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's that's quite impressive, given his age as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so speaking back to his time in Senegal, what did his own activism in Senegal look like? What were his activities? What specific or what, yeah, what specific changes did he want to see in Senegal? And then following that, how was he received by the Senegalese government? Yeah, well, he wasn't received very well by the Senegalese government. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, his, his activism and his activities really were in between formalized political activism yeah. and just rekindling with his home country in very daily and popular ways. Mm-hmm. So the more formal activism, which he quickly branched away from, he was actually expelled from the party that he helped, uh, wow. the movement he helped co-found because he was deemed by you know the, the less, let's say, um, adventurous wing of that movement as deviant and what, too radical or uncontrollable and not aligned enough on the party the party line, line. right that's mm-hmm. pretty classic yeah <laughs> um and so he was in between that so going to you know underground meetings at three in the morning mm-hmm. in popular neighborhoods and then getting the word that the next week there's another meeting at another time so that they don't get caught so that's one aspect of it as I was mentioning earlier, he also frequented a lot of artists, the underground, you know, artist movement critiquing Senegal's negritude, mm-hmm. okay. which had become at that time like a state policy, right? Wow. So like there's one official art and you can't deviate from that. Yeah. So you had underground artists who were contesting that as well. Wow. And also just day to day, he had a part-time job at, as a researcher at the university. Mm-hmm. But what he'd do is he'd walk around for hours on end during the day in popular neighborhoods. So if anyone listening knows a little bit of Dakar, you know, uh, Kuloban, Fas, Castor, mm-hmm. Gediway, Pekin. So all of these popular neighborhoods, you know, where you would see the, the, the level of precarity in Senegalese society and also the level of the, 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 the wealth gap yeah. between, you know, very uh, rich neighborhoods where you had members of the regime, yeah. you know, very rich business people, and on the other side, the vast majority of Senegalese masses mm-hmm. struggling to, to make it mm-hmm. just to survive one day. So that was, you know, his, his, his various activities. And part of all of that, in between, you know, meeting people on a daily basis in popular neighborhoods, mm-hmm. in between formal political activism and, and, and his links with art, there's always, from his standpoint, a connection to international radical politics. Mm-hmm. And in for one of the summers that he spent here, he spent weeks hosting Black American activists. Wow. And they would talk about the Black Panther Party. Uh, they would talk about the Vietnam War. They would talk about the struggle against uh, apartheid in South Africa. And so you have all these links of these links happening in Dhaka. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so super interesting, considering... Oftentimes, again, as said on this podcast, unfortunately, when we think about our contemporary age between, let's say, a newer generation of people who are concerned with the struggle for black liberation, all too often the connections between the continent and the international sphere are not known. Mm. So hearing, I mean, my uncle said previously on this podcast, he was very much aware of what's happening in 
in the US and you're saying as well that US activists came to Senegal. Mm. So this kind of notion of like Africa ever being separate from the wider struggle and vice versa isn't isn't accurate at all. No. And notions of like reverse diaspora mm -hmm. coming to play here as well. No. Which I think is very important. I feel like these stories should often be spoken about and, and told. And I think it's very important that we, that we do this work. So I remember when we first met, we spoke about, if I remember correctly, there was an attack on the French Cultural Center. No. Was Blondin involved in that? Or? So he was not directly involved. Okay. But let's say that the seeds he he sowed bloomed. Okay. Because right? that year after being expelled from France, he was very active, but he was also very active alongside his younger brothers. Mm -hmm. And it's his younger brothers that led the attack. Oh, wow. So what happened is that there was, for months and months, a conversation between Senghor, Senegalese head of state, and Pompidou, Georges Pompidou, the French head of state. Mm -hmm. Both of them were classmates in the late 1920s, right? <laughs> so not only were they very closely tied by yeah. the historical links between Senegal and France, but they were also personally tied. Yeah. So Senghor advocated for Blondin's return to France, not because you know he was necessarily preoccupied by Blondin's future, but more because he didn't want him as you know a, troublemaker, right? As a menace yeah. to his own regime. Wow. So finally, he got the entry ban removed. Removed, and Blondin was allowed to go back into France in the fall of uh, 1970. Okay. A few months later, mm -hmm. that's when the attack occurs. Oh, okay. So Pompidou, French president, is set to visit uh, Dakar. Yeah. And for about a year, Dakar, the main uh, stretches and the main roads and avenues of Dakar are in construction or rather in rehabilitation. Yeah. Only for like a 24, 48-hour visit. While the all the popular neighborhoods, all the slums were obviously completely uh, invisibilized, but also what what Sango would do quite often before these grand international meetings is yeah. they'd have what they call compagne de déguerpissement. So that means they'd host stretches of tens of people or hundreds of people, notably, you know, street vendors. They would take them and forcibly remove them from that area and send them like 10, 15 kilometers away. So that, you know, international partners, quote unquote, wouldn't see them as mm -hmm. they come from the airport. So that was the plan yeah. for Pompidou's visit. A few weeks before the visit, a, a group of about 15 young radical activists inspired by the Black Panther Party yeah. and more generally black, black Power in the States and as well the Uruguayan movement of the Tupamaros okay. set fire to the French Cultural Center mm -hmm. as a symbol of neocolonialism. Amazing. And also an annex of the, uh, of the Ministry of Public Work, uh, mm -hmm. of, of Infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah the Ministry of Infrastructure. And they weren't caught at the time, mm -hmm. but they wanted to take it a step further. And the day of the visit, mm -hmm. wanted to attack the motorcade. Oh, shit. Yeah. So not necessarily kill, yeah. but at least... Cause some commotion. Cause commotion, cause disorder. Yeah. After the fact, you know, having spoken to a few of those who were part of the, of the attack, they said it was unconscious because they... I mean, police probably would have just killed... Or anyone, they, they anyone were, on site, obviously, right, shoot obviously. on site. But anyway, that, that, that was what happened. So they got caught, and among the members that got caught were two of Blondin's brothers. Wow. And so at that time, Blondin, and that's the second moment of radicalization after, his, after him being expelled, he tried to see what was possible in terms of you know, political or diplomatic um, exchanges to 
somehow find find a, a resolution yeah. and get his comrades out of prison. So he met with Samir Amin in Paris. He met with Aimé Césaire in Paris, trying to have them as like advocates advocates towards Senghor. Wow! Right, and to no avail. Yeah, um, Samir Amin suggested that they build the political means for their action, and Aimé Césaire said that he couldn't, especially publicly, disavow his brother Sadar. Senghor. Yeah. yeah. Oh. And so he he'd send him a message personally and try okay. to mediate. Right. So after realizing that the more moderate ways of advocating for the comrades' release was to no avail, yeah, that's when they said, "All right, we'll we'll just do it ourselves." Wow! And that meant finding a way of getting military trained and releasing the comrades themselves. And so that led them through a few contacts within the uh, Palestinian Liberation Movement mm-hmm. to Syria. Okay. So they went to Syria in a training camp of the Fatah, mm-hmm. where they met. Palestinian freedom fighters and Eritrean freedom freedom fighters as well, mm-hmm. and so the military trained. They were in the desert, a few kilometers from Damas, Damascus, mm-hmm. and so after a few months training, they headed to Algeria. Wow, where you had uh, the international chapter of the Black Panther Party, mm-hmm. led at the time by Aldrich Cleaver. Yeah, and so he, what Blondin and a few of his comrades wanted was through the mediation of Cleaver and the Black Panther Party to have access to the National Liberation Front of Algeria, mm-hmm. the party in power who had led the independence fight. Yeah. And that they could be they could use their diplomatic tools to convince the Senegalese government to release their comrades. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen because at the time the Black Panther Party was, you know, entrenched in a crisis between Hugh Newton and Eldridge Cleaver and mm. it was just they didn't have time to get involved to get involved and so then they headed to Conakry mm-hmm. led by Sekoutouré yeah and the name they gave at the airport was an uncle of Blondin okay however that uncle a few days prior had been deposed or at least had been expelled from the government mm. because Sekoutouré deemed him to be like an interior menace and part of uh, international conspiracy to depose him from from power. Okay, so he was not allowed to enter Guinean territory. London. Yeah. Oh wow. Then, after a few days in the Conakry airport, he was sent. He 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 was able to flee to Bamako. Okay. In Mali, so he spent about six months. At the time, it was the military regime mm-hmm. under Moussa Traoré. Yeah. Uh, he organized with Malian comrades. Bearing in mind that he also had family in Mali. Yeah, exactly. And he, at some point, tried to get some weapons in Liberia. So he went through Ivory Coast and then Liberia. In the end, that, that plan didn't work out. But anyway, he was super active at that point, trying to find a plan to liberate his comrades, to free his comrades. Ultimately, the plan was to abduct the French ambassador to Senegal. Oh, wow. Yeah. As the kind of like a hostage exchange exactly. program. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But it never came to fruition. No, it never came to fruition because the Malian military regime had eyes everywhere. And mm. before a Senghor visit to Mali, they, they caught Blondin and, uh, and the rest, I guess, is history. So talk to me. He got caught in Mali then? He got caught in Mali. By the Malian yeah. government? Yeah. I don't think he was the president of Mali at the time. It was uh, Moussa Traoré. Moussa Traoré, exactly. Yeah. So he's caught... And then given to Senegalese government. Yeah. So he spent almost three months in in jails in Bamako. Wow. In atrocious conditions. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously no air conditioning. Yeah. 
barely any walks outside of his cell. He, you know, the Malian police used a razor and completely shredded his hair. So it was, it was really very harsh conditions. And then he was sent to extradited to Senegal a few months later. Okay. Tried and convicted for, you know, these usual cases. I think it was espionage, treason, or it was, it was, uh, being a threat to national security and all that stuff. So he was um, convicted to three years. He was sentenced to three years to, in prison. Okay. Yeah. And sent to the infamous island of Goria. Goria Island. I mean, the symbolism is so yeah. it's incredible that he is sent to a place where, I mean, where slaves were sent from, mm-hmm. you know, and people who were involved in that slave trade were often the Europeans as well. Yeah. But yeah, carry on. So he's sent there and then... And then he spends a little over a year. Yeah. Very harsh conditions. He has about one hour of daylight a day. And how old is he at this point? He is 25. Okay. Yeah. And he has access to a few books, a few newspapers, but it's very, very difficult for him because he's he's a social being, right? Yeah. He needs to be interacting with people. He needs to be moving around. Yeah. He's he's always been in, in movement. Yeah. And so for him, it's, it's, it gets very complicated. He actually, we actually found a letter he wrote to the um, penitentiary administration, yeah, where he says that you know the conditions are actually against Senegalese legislation, and that he he you know demands his his detention conditions to be revoked, and he gets some visits, but progressively the situation gets a lot more tense with the prison guards mm-hmm. who are absolutely ruthless, yeah. And it's worth mentioning that at that time, the interior minister is a former French colonial officer. The interior minister for Senegal Sen- yeah. is a former French colonial officer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So wow. throughout the 70s, you have a Frenchman, yeah. part of the colonial administration in the 40s and 50s, yeah. who stayed in Senegal, yeah. gained Senegalese uh, citizenship at independence, yeah. married uh, Senegal's niece, and became interior minister in the 70s. Wow. And so he gave very strict orders. It was be ruthless with these prisoners. Because wow. these Blondin affiliates yeah. will try to mess with your head. And they'd even be able to stab you in the back as you're not looking at them. That was the whole rhetoric of the time. Wow. And eventually, you got fights between Blondin and the prison guards. And this interior minister, who's called Jean Quenin, visits the prison in late April. Yeah. There's a clash between Blondin and him. Wow. And what most likely happened is that Blondin was beaten very harshly. And over the next few weeks, he his state declined and progressively succumbed to his uh, injuries. injuries and then was found dead in his prison cell. And then the death was uh, covered up as a supposed suicide. Well, that's the official story, but no yeah. one really buys it anyway. No. Wow. Well, no, thank you for that introduction to Blondin. And I hope that has inspired the listeners as it has inspired me and inculcated me with a love of Blondin and further re-entrenched my hatred of Senghor. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah. It's been great. Thank you. Until next time. Thanks.